Well, let me invite you to find a Bible. If you did not bring one with you, there are some provided in the pews there for you. And turn with me in your New Testaments to the letter of Hebrews. We are going to be in chapter 9 this morning. If you're visiting with us, you should know this is just where we are. Um, I did not select this text per se. Um, We have a practice commonly here, most normally, of laboring to study the Word of God the way God gave it to us. And so that means that we start at the beginning of books in Scripture and we try to study through them in their entirety, that we might give careful consideration to its historical context and to the flow of the arguments that are being made. It helps to keep us from error. I am prone to error, and I think that studying the Word of God this way helps us to be faithful. So we're going to be in chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. A couple of comments before we uh, pray and read the text together. John Owen said this, All the glorious institutions of the law were at best but as stars in the firmament of the church and therefore were all to disappear at the rising of the Son of Righteousness. (laughs) As only John Owen can. But what a beautiful analogy. See, we're at a point in this study of the letter that was written to the Hebrews where we are in the midst of deep considerations about what God has done in fulfilling and bringing to culmination the new covenant through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we read at the end of chapter 13, it is in the midst of his argument transitioning between uh, chapter 8 Verse 13, the end there in chapter 9, that John Owen makes that analogy. Because at the end of chapter 8, verse 13, it says, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And we have to be very careful as we are in the midst of these considerations that we do not unnecessarily disparage the old covenant. For what has been made clear is that the intent of Jesus Christ in his person and work and fulfillment of the old was not to diminish or disparage or dishonor in any way the old covenant as bad or wrong. Imperfect, yes. Insufficient, yes. Pointing and promising for something more, yes. But in the economy and the providence and the sovereignty and the wisdom of God, it had a purpose and a place and a beauty. And it's important that we recognize not only the discontinuity then between the old and the new, but at some places the importance of the continuity and the beauty of the old and how it informs our understanding of and even participation in the new. That is going to be in part what he does in the first 10 verses of chapter 9. And so what a great illustration that is by John Owen. I'm going to actually come back to that, I hope, at the end. But keep in mind then, I'm going to give you my outline, if you will, before we read the text, because I want you to know, I want us to read this, these 10 verses about the 
worship and the regulations of worship and what they did or didn't do and what they pointed to in verses 1 through 10 in light of three things. Beauty, purpose, and promise. Beauty, purpose, and promise. So pretty simple and straightforward, okay? So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. Let's pray together and ask God to help us as we read. God, we are unworthy um, and unable by our nature and our own strength to read your word and glean anything good from it. But God, we recognize that because it is your word, it is life and truth and perfection. And so God, we pray that as we now set our minds to see it and to understand it, that you would reveal to us the beauty and the truth of this text. And that God, through your word, you would hold before us the Lord Jesus Christ, his perfection and his sufficiency for our souls. God, speak now from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Beginning in verse 1, the writer says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. Maybe yours may say the showbread. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place or the holy of holies. Having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tables of the covenant. And it were above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. So first and probably most significantly or with the most link, let's think about this text in light of the beauty that is being described here. What is being talked about? Let's be careful to define exactly what it is that the writer is holding before us. What is it that he's describing? It's not the temple, though some aspects, many aspects of these regulations would have been um, present in the temple after its construction For sure, what he's appealing to are the regulations by which the tabernacle or the tent, you see that language there, in the Old Testament, when the children of Israel were wandering and in the wilderness, the tabernacle in which they worshipped. So not the temple. When he says it's interesting to us, verse 5, above it were the cherubim and these things overshadowing the mercy seat, but of these things 
We cannot now speak in detail. You and I may look at this and think, well, there's a whole lot of detail here. This is pretty detailed about uh, the forms and the architecture and the structure and the materials that were used and the furniture that was there. We may think, man, this is pretty detailed uh, description of what was going on there. But we have to understand that to these Israelites, these Jewish Christians that come from a Jewish heritage and a Jewish background, this detail was nothing. If you go back and look at the, uh, the, the, the regulations and where they are given in the Old Testament, and you go to like Exodus 25, what you find is that from chapter 25 in Exodus, and the chapters are lengthy, through chapter 30, there are chapters dedicated to the directions given and the regulations given as to what this tabernacle was to look like. What was to be done there? What furniture was to be there? Where the furniture was to be set? What the things were to be made of? How it was to be structured? When and where and how it was to be approached? Who could approach what parts of it? And so forth. It is never ending. And the writer, to the, the, the writer of this letter is mindful, I think, that his audience is both well aware of the detail and of the significance of the detail, and in some way, because of their Jewish mindset and heritage and where they've come from, they sort of think about the church in these terms. So it would have been somewhat offensive. It would have been earth-shattering. It would have been a bomb in verse 13 of chapter 8 to come out with, these things are being dissolved. It is getting ready to disappear. They have been made obsolete. So so he wants to clarify because he knows that for these Christians that have come out of Judaism, that their thought of God's dwelling with his people and his interaction with his people and his knowledge of them and them of him in terms of their corporate interaction, that it was in these terms. And so it's important, I think, at this point for him to stop and do what he does here. A couple of other things uh, that we find here in the text Notice that even the first covenant, right? So he's going to make perhaps some lines of continuity here, but had regulations for worship. He's, gonna, he's giving us some of those. And an earthly place of holiness. Now that's paramount to the text because we don't really have any context or understanding exactly of what this is. Or even if we know what it is from scripture, we don't really think in these kinds of terms. Notice he goes on to describe that in the tent there was prepared a first section where the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence were. This is the place, the first section of the tabernacle of the corporate area, where most of the worship took place, where the priests would regularly go in, where they would regularly offer sacrifices, where there was more people and more participation. And it was known as the holy place. But then it tells us that there was a second section and it was behind a curtain, a veil, and it was called the most holy place or the holy of holies. Now, the holy of holies is, it's called that because in in the Hebrew language in this culture, there was no superlatives. There was no way to describe uh, sort of better, best kind of language. So they just did it by repetition. So you had the holy place, and then you had the holy, holy place. So that you find when God is described in the Old Testament, right, 
the thrice holy God, for the declares unto him, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So the use of repetition there to give significance and preeminence and priority. But so this second section in the tabernacle was called the Holy of Holies. What was so significant about this place, this place where only the high priest could go and him only with certain preparations being made once a year, what was so significant about this place that was behind the veil? Well, it was behind the veil because the veil signified the separation between God and his people, right? So that we understand then the holy of holies to be the place where God's presence dwelt. It was the place of God's promised dwelling with his people. It's a unique situation for the children of Israel in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. So that the people of God, interestingly, think about this, were not allowed to come in to these holy places and certainly not allowed to pass beyond the veil. Not even the priests, generally speaking, were allowed to pass through the veil and to enter into the presence of God, into his dwelling among men. This harkens back to chapter 8, verse 11 that we just read. Look, glance back up there for just a moment. Part of the new covenant promises and what separates it in its newness from the old is God declares, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord. Why? For they shall all know me. See, this is new because in the old economy, God was not accessed in that same way. There was this holy of holies, this most holy place that was beyond the veil. And that veil stood as a constant reminder of the separation that continued between God and the people. It's a noteworthy reality then that God never made any promise at any time in the Old Covenant to dwell among his people except to dwell there. Now that's not to say that his presence and his spirit was limited to, those, to that room. God can go and dwell where he pleases. But in terms of his indwelling humanity, in terms of his promise to dwell among them, it was only promised to be done here. And yet it was from that place that the people were almost exclusively, with very little exception, reserved from going. Now, friends, this is significant as we're going to see some places of discontinuity, part of the newness of the new, part of the blessing of the new that we shall all know God. Friends, we don't have holy places. Let's be very clear. We do not have holy places We are in Christ a holy people. We do not have holy places. What made that place holy was what was there. And I don't mean the furniture. So that all the descriptions here about what furniture was to be there, what it was to be made of, where it was to be positioned. Friends, the furniture didn't make it holy. Now, it was significant, and we'll see that in just a moment, but what made it holy was the fact that it was where God was. It was his promised dwelling among them. And the furniture that was there was only responsible to accurately reflect that holiness. Friends, we don't have holy places because in Christ, we now take him everywhere we go. What a a beautiful reality and promise. 
the indwelling Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, God among us, God's tabernacle, right? We, that's where we gain access to God. That is where and how God dwells among us in the person and work of Christ. So that if we're in Christ, God is in us. So that there's not holy places, there's holy people. And the furniture, so back to this reality, and everything that was there, though it did not make it holy, it was responsible then for accurately reflecting the holiness that was intrinsic to it because of God's presence. Now think about the implications for that of that for just a moment. Think about the implications about that for our life. So that now in Christ, if God is with us personally then we are holy and make and what makes us holy is not what we do or what we are but what is in us the same way that the tabernacle the holy of holies what made it holy was not the arrangement of things not the, not the furniture that was there but what was inside of it right so if god is in us, if his spirit is in us, if we are in Christ, then we are now holy, not because of what we are and what we do, but because of what is inside of us. Therefore, we must be careful to use the metaphor that's here in the text to arrange the furniture of our hearts so that we are rightly reflecting the beauty and holiness of who we have now been made in Christ. Right? So everybody says, oh, well, if you say, well, you know, it's not about what you can do to be good enough for God. You're just saying you can live however you want to live and grace is sufficient and God's going to save everybody anyway. No, no, no. That's to, it's to miss the point of the gospel in its entirety. Friends, as was the case in the regulated worship of God's people in the Old Testament, even in the structure and in the furniture of the tabernacle, what made it holy was what was there. And friends, what makes us holy is what's in here. And if we have been made holy by Christ, we now bear the responsibility to accurately reflect that holiness and that beauty before men. We must arrange the furniture of our hearts however God has declared it so be arranged that people see the beauty of God in our lives. Think about the implications of this, not only for the way we live, but for the way we worship. Remember that the value, as I said last week, and the beauty of those things, all of those regulations, all of those laws, the tabernacle, all of these things, the beauty of them was directly related to their accuracy. What made them beautiful was that they looked like something beautiful. They were a shadow of something beautiful. The thing that cast the shadow is beautiful. They were a copy of a beautiful thing. Right? I've titled this sermon, Copies of the True Things. That's borrowing from the language that we'll see next week down in verse 23. Copies of the heavenly things. Copies of the true things. You'll see that down later in the text. Right? What made it beautiful is that it looked like something beautiful. What made them beautiful was a right reflection of something beautiful. So that, friends, for our worship, the beauty and holiness that is to be reflected in our worship is to be that which reflects God in his nature, in his person, in himself. In other words, we have to labor in all that we do, in the way that we worship, to accurately reflect God. Now, that, that may seem... That may seem like a light reality. The question, though, is how? 
Right? How do we come and worship in the, in, 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 by certain forms and certain realities, understanding that we are a holy people and that we are to be worshiping in such a way that reflects accurately the holiness and the beauty of God? Well, I, I think here, and you, you see the answer to that in this text, there are two things further about this beauty that we're pointed at. Pricelessness and prescription. One of the interesting things about the limited description that did not go, quote, into much detail, as the author says, is that the writer of this letter to the Hebrews picks certain things from the account in Exodus. He picks specific things to recount here. Particularly, he picks gold. He picks all of the golden items. Look look at the description here. You've got the lampstand, which was gold, right? It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was the second section, the holy of holies. And in it had the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold. Now, when we say all sides, we typically mean all of the outside. Friends, you realize the ark of the covenant, top, bottom, sides, inside and out was covered in pure gold. Right? He's choosing these items, the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered on all sides with gold. And in it was a golden urn holding the manna, that is holding the the urn that um, reflected and represented God's provision and sustaining his people. All of these objects of gold are meant to point to the pricelessness and the heavenliness of God's design in the place of worship. Here, Al Mohler put it this way. This selection, all of these particular golden items, this selection by the writer appeals to the priceless heavenly design in the place of the worship of the one true and living God according to his prescription. And that this stands in stark contrast to the worship and to the places of worship of all of the idolaters, that is, those who worshiped other pagan gods. What he's saying is that those things did not reflect a priceless heavenly design according to a divine prescription because necessarily they were the invention of the human heart. They were according to the imagination of men. So when they came together to worship, the idolaters, those who worshipped pagan gods, they were constantly having to ask themselves questions like, well, how does he want us to worship him? What kind of house would he like to dwell in? What kind of furniture would he like there? What sort of arrangement would he like? What should the structure and the architecture of this building, of this house, of this God be? So that they, in their imaginations and their own inventions, became responsible for the design of the worship. That separates Christian worship and has all through redemptive history from the worship of all other gods. Continuing his point... This is how he concludes that God then is telling his people with regard to how and where they worship him. I don't want your creativity. I want your obedience. Now, that's interesting. So let me let me tie this together. What he's saying is that what this helps to teach us is that it is only through obedience that is to God's design for worship by prescription and regulation that we accurately reflect the God that is to be worshipped, and so our worship is made beautiful. That's 
Listen, that's a novel idea for most Christians today. I just have to tell you. In order for that to happen, there has to be regulation. So that if you go back up to verse 1, you remember I said a moment ago, that even the first covenant had regulations. His point is, so too does the new. Even the first one had regulations because it was only by divine prescription that they had any hope of making it beautiful with what that actually means, rightly reflecting the beautiful God that was the object of their worship. The reality is that God has always been concerned, listen very carefully, not only with the object of our worship, but with the forms or the modes of our worship. That's a debate that rages in Christian circles. When you start talking about what you do in worship and whether or not it should be done and how it is to be done, people always say, well, as long as you're worshiping God, it doesn't matter what you do. The testimony of the Bible beyond even Hebrews 9 is very different. Friends, if we think back even to the institution of the law, or at least to its writing down on tablets of stone and its formally being given to the people, the first two commandments deal with both of these realities. In the first commandment, number one, you shall have no other gods before me. The object of our worship must be him. But he doesn't leave it there. What's the second? That you not use graven images. So the object that it must be God and God alone and the modes of worship, the forms of worship that it can and cannot be done in certain ways. So that God shows an extreme concern both for the object and for the modes or the forms of the worship of his people. Let me return to John Owen for just a minute. John Owen labors in this point. Pages and pages and pages. Okay, listen to what he says, though. I'm going to try to narrow it down for you. Don't try to write this down. I'll, I'll try to have these put on Facebook or something. It's hard to read, but I want you to, it's unbelievably wise. Listen to what he says. There was never any covenant between God and man but those that had some ordinances or arbitrary institutions of external divine worship attached unto them. He continues after some explanation, nor is the new covenant destitute of them or their necessary observance. That is of these ordinances and institutions for worship. He says this, all public worship and the sacraments of the church are of this nature. For whereas it is engrafted into natural light, some external worship is to be given unto God, he would have it of his own prescription and not as unto the modes of it, left to the inventions of men. And then in summary fashion, this is what he says, a worship not ordained of God is a worship not accepted of God. Woe. How many Christians in our churches today have never even considered that point? That's why I'm taking such time to deal with it this morning, friends. Not because it's a soapbox, but because as the holy people of God, made holy by Jesus, because of that which is within us, we must not only live lives that accurately reflect him, we must structure our churches and our worship in a way that accurately reflects him. That is the only time that our lives 
or our worship will ever be truly beautiful when they accurately foreshadow the beautiful thing that casts the shadow in that sense, when we point to the beauty of God in whatever capacity we are able and rightly to do that, we must do it by obedience, not by creativity, not by creativity. So then the preeminent concern in the worship of God's people is obedience. It is only through obedience to God's regulations that his design for worship can be upheld and our worship will most accurately reflect its object. And friends, it is in that that their worship and ours in the new covenant are beautiful. Now, very briefly, for just a few moments, I do want to move to consider purpose and promise. Not only beauty, but purpose and promise. So that if you go down to verses 6 through the very beginning of chapter 9, let's, let's read those together again. He moves on. He says, these preparations having thus been made, he's now going to talk about what they did, not just how it looked. The priests would go regularly into the first section, the holy place, performing their ritual duties, but into the second, only the high priest would go, and he would go only but once a year, and not without taking blood that he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By the way, just a footnote, I don't have time to spend much time here, but friends, as a, as a Christian, how big is your view of sin? Does it, include, does it include unintentional sin? Have you ever stopped to consider the reality that because of the depth of the wickedness of the human heart, you sin in ways that you do not know and that you do not even intend? We think about sin in terms of the sins we commit, the things we do that God's told us not to do, or the sins of omission, if you will, the things that we're told not to do that we don't do, or the things that we do, do that we're told not to do. Commission, omission, friends, the sins of unintention. When, when we sin and don't even mean to, when we sin and don't even know it, the sins that are unintentional sins of the people he went in to make atonement for. But, but look at verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. And this is symbolic for the present age. Well, what was the purpose? See, in the beauty of accurate reflection, we're reminded of the purpose of the old covenant worship and its regulations. And I've already labored to this point to some degree. But if the point of the book of the letter, this book of the letter to the Hebrews is not to diminish or disparage the old covenant law and its regulations, it is then to say and to remind us that it had a purpose. Imperfect in, its, in what it was designed to do, yes, but it was imperfect by design. Faulty, if you will, by design. That they had a purpose and in accomplishing that purpose, they were beautiful. So that the sacrifices that they made week in and week out, when the priests would go in, they would do these ritual duties. They would offer up these certain offerings. These things, yes, held back the wrath of God temporally against sin. But they did not ever satisfy the wrath of God against sin completely. We know that because they had to continue to go in. Week by week, day by day, they had to continue to make sacrifices. But so much more than temporally holding back God's wrath, the entire system in its right beauty was designed, all of the regulations, all of the laws, 
to reflect the holiness of God to men and to confront them with the reality that they are going to be held accountable to him. I mean, think about this, friends, the whole system that they had. They had to go in every single week and offer more blood and kill more animals and make more sacrifices. And they would have been forced to ask the question, why do I have to keep doing this? It is because of the holiness of God and the depth of my sin. Reminding them week in and week out, this entire system, though it could not ever make them holy, it constantly taught them and confronted them with the holiness of God. So that as we said last time, this is a system characterized by promise. It's a system characterized by promise. It, refl- it accurately reflected the, to the people of God, Jesus Christ. And in doing so, it was helpful. Do you see that in its continual nature, when it says here that because the second, the veil was still there and as long as the first section remained, in other words, as long as the division remained, that access to God had not yet been opened, that even in its architecture, even in its structure, even in the requirements and the habitual, continual nature of its duties, in the way that it was performed and even the structure of the building itself, that every aspect of it cried out for something better. It cried out for completion. It, the whole system, it longed for a sacrifice to be made that would satisfy It longed for access to be granted so that all of God's people would know him in this way and have this access to him in this way. So that the imperfect priests who offered an imperfect sacrifice, these insufficient sacrifices that had to be continually made, the structure, the architecture, the nature of all of it, it cried out for Christ. It cried out for Jesus. Friends, that leads us to the last thing, the promise. It it cried out for the promise. So that in the beauty of the reflection of the old, we see something of its purpose, but we're also encouraged to see in it the great promises of God. That's very interesting. Listen, that which makes the old beautiful simultaneously makes it insufficient. What, what we've been talking about, what makes the old beautiful is because it reflected the holiness of God to the people. Because it pointed to Jesus who is beautiful. Because it prepared them for the recipient of their king. But friends, no matter how right the reflection was in its beauty, it wasn't Jesus. So it was necessarily then insufficient It could not do what it was pointing and looking forward to someone to do. So that that which makes it beautiful simultaneously is that which makes it insufficient. And that tells us something about the purpose and the promise. That which it hoped for. Listen, a copy or a shadow. Look, I told you last time I used the illustration of like if you had someone to paint a picture of a, a loved one. Maybe one of your children, you're going on a long trip. And you commission an artist to paint a beautiful painting of someone that you love dearly so that you can take that picture with them. No matter how wonderful a reflection that picture is. No matter how encouraging and helpful that picture is. No matter how often it reminds you of that person. It's not that person. 
It can't be that person, and it will create in you a longing to be with that person. It will not suffice. And in the same way, insofar as the old and its beauty reflected Jesus to the people, it created a desire among the people to have the fulfillment for the promises to be accomplished. What was the promise that it made? Friends, as with the picture of your child, the picture promises that someone was standing there to be painted. The shadow promises that something cast the shadow. The copy promises that there was something from which it was copied. Do, do, do you understand what I'm saying? There is an intrinsic promise in a shadow, in a copy, in a picture. Because it comes from something. And the promise is that that something is and is real. And it causes us to long. It causes us to long for it. So that when we look at the old, we must see in it the promise of the new. The promise of grace, the promise of a woman's seed, the promise of a bruised head, the promise of life eternal. And we must be reminded that God never forgot his promise. That in seeing the old and all of its regulation and all of its habitual nature, we must see in the old that God has been revealing and accomplishing his promises all along, preparing his people. Friends, if you've never taken any time to study the tabernacle worship of God and all of these forms and tables and golden stands and boxes and, you know, you get to Exodus 25, if you've ever read Exodus and you just sort of flip the page and gloss over it. Let me, let me give, Tim Challies said this as an encouragement to our consideration of these matters. A greater understanding of the tabernacle can give us greater understanding to the love of God revealed in his son, Jesus. And it is Jesus who tore the curtain of the tabernacle at the cross. See, it matters. To return in closing to John Owen's illustration at the beginning. Praise be to God, friends. The sun has risen. No longer are we only able to see the rays of the sun as it dawns upon the horizon. The sun has risen and we can now see it. Jesus has come and in him is life. If you look to what it says at the beginning of the next section that Chase is going to pick this up because we do not have time, but let me give you this encouragement. If you look at the end verses, uh, let's look at the end verses 9 and 10. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices were offered that could not perfect, that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So even in performing all these regulations perfectly, it could not make them holy. But deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Verse 11, friends, but. Praise be to God. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption. Friends, the old has passed away because the sun of righteousness has dawned. Look to Christ and in him find life. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, thank you for the um, opportunity that we've had this morning to hear from your word. 
Uh, in, in all of its difficulty, even as it talks about things that are foreign to us that we may not understand, God, we pray that you would help us to see from all of these truths the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that he has come, that the sun has dawned. God, that no longer are we only able to see the copy, the shadow. God, but we are able to see the Son in His fullness and through the Son to be granted access to Your presence. God, thank You that in Christ You have dwelled with us, that by Your Spirit You dwell in us. God, we pray very simply now that we would not be looking to some religious tradition. We would not be looking to some external obedience. We would not be looking to um, our own effort and righteousness, but God, for salvation and new birth and regeneration, God, we pray that you would help us to look only to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.